You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Recording by Richard Kilmer, San Antonio, Texas. Astounding Stories, 19, July 1931. The Hands of Aten by H.G. Winter, Part 2. Still they went down. Savage crevices split in the days when the volcano roared with fire and gushing lava were skirted. Crude ladders reached down, ever recurring pits, beneath which there was always another corridor, and always leading down. Craig could not reckon the depth they must be at. He knew that the heat was growing, though, and that his skin was wet with perspiration beneath his furs. He started to ask Tia the question that ceaselessly tormented him. How her race had come to the Arctic, but a prick from Shabako's sword silenced him. Then the passageway they were in widened. There was a bend just ahead. Through the gloom came the sonorous chant of many voices. The temple, whispered Taya. They turned the bend and saw, ahead, lit by a thick cluster of oil lamps, which threw a broad swath of yellowish light, two tall columns of corrupt Egyptian design. They framed the entrance to the sun-god's temple. The full volume of the chant of worship from inside poured through them. Shabako's sword brooked no pause. He drove his prisoners straight through. A host of impressions thronged Wes's bewildered eyes. A huge, misty, dark room, columns lining it. The vague form of a great idol squatting at the far end. Massed people bowed before it a weird chant rising into murmuring echoes along the high, dim ceiling. There were priests standing rigidly in front of the idol. Their hands stretched high, and every eye was upon them. No one saw the three in the doorway until a roar split the drone of worship. Way, way for thy pharaoh, Shabako the fourth. Shabako had stepped for the moment in front of his prisoners. His sword-blade was waved aloft. His ball rudely interrupted the ceremony. The chant stopped, and silence fell as the priests whirled around. The worshippers, too, turned and stared at the man who had broken the service with his imperious command. "'Way!' the vibrant voice cried again. "'Aside for thy pharaoh, who returns to the shrine of Aten, father of life.' Some sixty bewildered faces peered at the man. The silence of the buried temple was solid, awesome. Through the mist of writhing incense, smoke, and heavy shadows, the giant head of the idol stared down, cruel in the coldness of the rock it had been chiseled from. But a pathway cleared in the thick of the crowd, and without a glance to either side, Shabako's proud figure strode down it, driving his prisoners before him. Craig heard low gasps of astonishment, glimpsed the people fall back as he walked forward, saw the amazement in their eyes. The statue of the god seemed to grow as he neared the altar. It was in squatting posture, with hands outstretched, one above the other. The American was to learn the reason for that position later. Now he had only a fleeting impression of it, for a man stepped from a ceremonial position beside the god's feet 
and met Shabako halfway. His face was thin and cunning, with slanted rat's eyes. Ornate headdress and stiffly inlaid robes denoted him to be the high priest. He held a claw-like hand high. Hold, he bade shrilly, who art thou to come thus into the temple, calling thyself Shabako, Shabako, who has been dead these twenty years. The words were a thunderbolt of surprise, both to the pharaoh and Taya, and to Wes Craig. He could not see Shabako's face, but he saw his tall form pause and his tensed muscles relax. Dead these twenty years, the Egyptian at last repeated slowly, struggling to overcome the shock. Why, twas but a few hours ago that I left this temple in pursuit of... He peered at the priest's sly face. Who art thou? he demanded suddenly. Herhor, high priest of Aten. Craig heard the girl whisper something inaudible because of her surprise, but Shabako's bewildered voice cut in. Herhor, it cannot be. Thou art not Herhor. When I last saw Herhor, he was an underpriest of twenty. I was high priest of the temple. Call him. Where is I? Dust, said the priest, dust these ten years and more. Wes's senses were reeling. The bodies and the ice, he had taken it for granted that they had only lain there for days, a week at the most. That they had been entrapped for twenty years was incredible. Had he known that, he would not have even thought of using the condrenaline. Twenty years ago, he had been a boy of eight. It meant, Lord, it meant, the useful girl beside him was twice her age, and Shabako an old man, old yet young, fantastic, unimaginable, yet true. He saw Shabako pass a hand over his face, as if his body were suddenly tired, but the next moment it taunted again, and he swung around. His face was unreadable. A multitude of conflicting emotions struggled there. He strode to a group of several of the older men. Look at me, he cried, facing them squarely. Look well at my features. Am I not he who twenty years ago, as the high priest says, pursued the priestess and her lover into the land of ice? Am I not the man who ruled thee? Am I not Shabako? Is this not the priestess, Taya? They stared at him. Remembrance suddenly gleamed on their faces. A thin, cracked voice shrilled. Yea, Thou art Shabako, thou art Shabako, as he was twenty years ago, old yet without the lines of age on thy brow. And the priestess, well, I do remember her, that is she. A hand pointed at the trembling girl, all eyes centered on her, the high priest's mouth dropped open, and he believed. Then Shabako breathed deeply, drew himself up, with kingly dignity, faced the ranks of his people, soared again, held imperiously aloft. Thou hast seen, he cried, thou hast heard. Here is the guilty Taya, and here am I, returned to thee, still with the strength of my prime. As I was about to slay the rash Inaris, the ice entrapped us, and for twenty years we lay thus, while my spirit pursued those two guilty ones across the river of death. Then Aten aided me, filled my veins with his holy fire, and melted the ice from our bodies. 
we lived and breathed again. With his divine help, I slew Inaros and brought the transgressing virgin back to the temple. Twenty years have passed, but of years Aten thinks nothing. Give praise to our God. A breathless silence swallowed his shout. Then a mighty roar burst out, an exultant roar that soared up past the impassive image of the god and rolled in thunderous echoes along the roof. Praise to Aten! Praise to Aten! Wesley Craig smiled wryly. He could hardly credit the Condrenaline's power in wiping twenty years away. But it was evidently true. Shabako, he saw, really believed the superstition conceived story that he had just spun. So now what? The high priest was staring at him malevolently. His slanted eyes fastened on his garb of furs. His weedy voice pierced through the echoes. Oh, divine Shabako, he questioned shrilly, who is this stranger? The pharaoh's glance was contemptuous. A blasphemer, he said harshly. One who dares claim. But Wes had understood the question. He stepped forward, frankly and simply. He told his story. I found thy ruler and the maid and her lover in the ice, entrapped, he concluded. I cut them out and, with a fluid which is common knowledge in my country, restored them to life. I told this to Shabako, but he overpowered me and... Hear thou, bawled the pharaoh, furiously breaking in. Blasphemy! He claims the might of the god. Back, dog, lest I kill thee here myself. West saw the hopelessness it was. He shrugged and stepped back. He read all too plainly the hatred in Shabako's eyes. His frank story had also apparently inflamed the high priest against him. There was not a friend in the whole temple, save the girl, and the next moment Hirhor walked to her. His slanted eyes ran over her figure. A sneering smile appeared. So, he observed mockingly, Taya is returned to the temple. Yes, well do I remember thee now. The scornful cast of thy mouth, the proud bearing of thy head. Even Aten thou were scornful of. I remember. Aten remembers too. He turned slightly. Listen, O Shabako. Three days ago, thy elected successor, Siptah, died. We had met to choose a new ruler. But, by the will of God, thou art returned and art again Pharaoh. The people are grateful to Aten. In twelve hours a sacrifice shall proclaim our gratitude. His crafty eyes again swung to the girl. There, he shrilled, she pays for her sin. She is the sacrifice. There was a great shout from the crowd, but the words that Shabako then cried savagely were plainly audible to Wes Craig. I, Taya, O high priest, and the blasphemous stranger, too. Both shall die in the hands of Aten. The priest nodded, smiling cruelly. "'Tis well, Shabako, both shall die." Tia's frightened eyes met Craig's, then lifted to the form of the idol. He too peered up at it, and for the first time its hideousness and the cold-blooded cruelty of its design struck him. The rudely carved figure was a full forty feet high. The impassive face, horrible in the lifelessness of rock, stared unseeingly down on its worshippers. 
One gross black hand was held some ten feet above the palm of the other, and inserted in its palm was a long, keen pointed blade. The living sacrifice would be tied to the lower palm, the upper, by some trickery, would be made to slowly descend. A surge of panic swept over Craig. In his mind, he saw the slight, helpless form of the girl strapped to that grim paw, saw the knife inch down, saw it touch and prick and finally drive through her heart. And it would be the same for him. A flame of blind fury burst in him, making him reckless, mad. The hell we die, he yelled in English, and with a great bound, he was at Tia's side. A priest leaped for him, but Craig shot a foot out and sent him sprawling. Then, with eyes flaming and legs out thrust, he stood in front of the girl, facing the worshippers. Fools, he roared, listen to me. My words are truthful. I do not lie, as does thy pharaoh. I can prove that which I say I can. Take him, the high priest shrieked. Forward, take him. Craig could handle one or two, but not a dozen. A mass of men, women, soldiers, priests, swept at him. There was a brief moment of struggle, of oaths and shouts and excited yells from the crowd in the temple, till something thudded into the American's head and he went down. Feet trampled him, men surged over him. Then blessed unconsciousness enwrapped him, and he knew no more. He did not hear, as Taya did, Shabako's command. To the chamber with them, guard them well, to the time of sacrifice. A small party, led by the stocky figure of the captain of the pharaoh's guard, wound its way through a network of corridors, past jagged walls down which water slowly dripped, across a swaying bridge of hides that spanned an awful chasm in the volcano's very heart, and came at last to a large dark hole in the rock. The captain turned. In there, he commanded harshly. The two figures, man and girl, were dumped like sacks of flour into the gloomy chamber. The men who had carried them turned and tramped away. The captain faced one who had stayed. Guard them with thy life, Sita. Thou knowest the payment for carelessness. Sita nodded grimly. He was fully armed with spear and sword. He sat down outside the dark hole, and the captain retraced his steps. The pad of his feet on the floor died away, and then, for a long time, there was silence. Perhaps every five minutes, Sitaw turned and stared down into the hole behind. Ears craned for the slightest sound, but none came. The two inside, no doubt, were asleep. It was very hot down in the deep buried corridor, and though Sitaw was accustomed to the heat, he soon found his eyelids drooping and his whole body crying out for sleep. But he did not go to sleep. He knew too well what would befall him in Aten's hands if he did. He had seen many old men and women die in those hands on ceremony days, old people who croaked in helpless agony as the keen knife-blade dropped slowly down toward them, paused a second, inches from their hearts, and then plunged in with a rush. Old men and women, useless, their years of service gone, yes, and many unwanted girl-children. That was what the sun-god demanded, 
His hands reached ever for human bodies. It was cruel, but he was a god, and who was to question the will of a god? Sitah was very glad when, after six hours of lonely vigil, another guard relieved him and took his place outside the dark hole. Sitah spoke humorously to him, a grim kind of humor, as befitting one who has seen much death. They sleep, Hapu, he said, nodding into the prison, but soon a longer sleep will come for them, the sleep of the knife. He chuckled as he made his way far below to his bed. A few hours of rest, and he would be in fine fettle for the ceremony. The relieving guard grunted and peered into the cell. He saw two dark figures outstretched, mere blobs of black, a little blacker than the shadows. Yes, they slept. He sat down on the bench Sitah had just vacated. He had four hours to wait. Then the priests, led by Hehor, would come and the ceremony would begin, and the gods' hands would move together. It would be a fine show. He looked forward to it keenly. It would be delicious to see that girl Taya bared to the knife. It would please the god. Seldom did his hand hold such a beautiful sacrifice. And the queer stranger, too. He would probably die very noisily. When he saw the knife sliding down, he would regret his blasphemy and shriek for forgiveness. For a long time, Hapu sat quite motionless. He was a good watchdog. Hours passed. The vigil was nearing its end. The priests would soon come. Soon. A slight noise came from the cell behind him. He whirled around. The noise came again louder. A voice cried out, Water! Water! I am dying! Hapu grunted. It was the stranger's voice. The stranger must not die. It would spoil the ceremony. Aten would be wroth. He stared into the hole. One of the figures was tossing, writhing painfully. The agonized cry echoed again. Water, please, I'm dying. Hapu strode into the cell. For a moment he stood still, peering down at the tossing figure. His brain suddenly shouted alarm. This was no human body. What he began? But the question was never finished. Something hard crashed into the back of his skull. His spear dropped with a clank, and he slumped to the floor. Out of the shadows behind, a man emerged and bent down over the outstretched figure of the guard. A smile appeared on the man's lean face. The guard was out cold. It took Wes Craig just a moment to ascertain this. Then he tiptoed over to the dark form that lay on the floor, the girl, whose pale, anxious face peered up out of the shadows. Craig cut her bonds with the guard's sword and raised her to her feet. She stood close to him, clinging to him, trembling, almost not believing she was free. Her eyes were filled with awe as she looked up into the American's eyes. First thou didst restore life to me, she whispered, and now thou hast broken thy bonds. Surely thou must be a god. Wes smiled. It was simple, Taya, look. This buckle on my belt, tis sharp. I edged it round and cut the rope. It was slow work, else we would have been free long before. But I saw thee toss and writhe on the floor and cry out for water. Craig kicked the pile of furs 
that had been heaped one on top of the other and tied together with thread from an unraveled woolen mitten. This was my body, he said coolly, furs. The cell must be a storeroom for them, lucky for us. I was standing with a rock in my hand near the door when I cried out for water. We shall not die in Aten's hands, Taya. See, I have a sword, with luck. There was a warmer quality than reverence in Taya's eyes when she spoke, though she did not realize it. Then come quickly, O oh stranger, she said. The guard has been changed once. The time for sacrifice nears. Craig nodded. Only a sword was in his hand. His automatic, he found, had been taken from him while he lay unconscious in the temple, probably desired as a curious heathen object. The discovery, made when he cut his bonds, had been a serious blow to his hopes. With a sword, he was only a human being, but with a gun, he might have passed as supernatural to this primitive race. But it could not be helped. He peered to each side, gestured to the girl, and together they started up the sloping incline of the corridor. The heat of the earth was great, down where they were, and it made the passageway muggy and odorous. Fitful shadows were flung by widely separated oil lamps as they pressed forward, grotesque splotches of black that half a dozen times tightened the American's grasp on his sword, sure that a guard had come upon them. He knew that their margin of time in which to effect escape was small, and he gradually quickened their pace, sacrificing caution for speed. Taya's hand was in his left, and he had just turned to ask her if they were taking the best course up to the surface, when suddenly she stopped short. Harkin, she whispered, frightened. Wes craned his ears. For a moment there was nothing but silence. Then a faint sound trembled through the shadows. It could only have been that of many approaching footsteps. The priests, Taya murmured, tightening her grip on his hand. They come. There was a sharp bend in the corridor fifty feet ahead. From behind it, a growing clatter of sandals echoed through the rock-walled passageway. Craig paused, irresolute. Are we blocked ahead? he asked. Yes, her low voice hurriedly told him. But we can go back, cross the bridge of the chasm, and go up the other side. But others may be there, and... A shout cut her words short. Dim figures appeared around the bend in the passage. They were discovered. Wes Craig's face set grimly. He worked his hand into a good grip on the sword handle looked levelly at the gathering crowd ahead and said, I think it's best to face them now, Taya. I can hold them for minutes at least. Thou can perhaps escape. Rest assured, I shall take that high priest with me when I cross thy river of death. But where can I go? cried the girl. Nay, divine one, I shall stay at thy side. The excited yells of Herhor, urging the others forward, came plainly to their ears. Swords glittered in the gloom of the corridor, and like a foam-tipped wave that slowly gathers speed, the group of priests and soldiers charged down on the man and girl. Craig saw that she would not run. Then come, he shouted, and swung her around. With desperate speed, they retraced their steps. They soon passed their cell, and recklessly leaped through the deceptive shadows 
on the far side, on, down the corridor. The high priest and the others followed close behind. His crafty face was distorted with rage. He kept screaming to his men, The wrath of God is on thee if they escape. Craig's ears caught that, and he found time for a bitter smile. If only they had left him his automatic. A few bullets flung into them would even matters a trifle. The corridor twisted and slanted ever downward. They panted around a corner and came to the brink of a dark pit. Down, cried the girl. She led the way, nimbly dropping down the fifteen-foot rawhide ladder that was there. Halfway down the ladder, Wes reached up with his sword and cut it from where it was fastened. He fell to the bottom of the hole with a grunt. As he extricated himself from the ladder's entangling meshes, he yelled up, Come and get us, you cutthroats, if you can, and was off after the lithe form of the girl. End of section four.